morning. Are you going to play under my preaching? I like that. <laughs> Luke chapter 13. I want to begin with two illustrations, but before I do that, I, I have been challenged this week. I have been in several settings this week where, where I have been around adults and, and I've been around old grouchy adults this week several times, myself being probably the lead old grouchy one. And, and in those settings, I've observed something that old grouchy adults, adults of teenagers, we take our teens to task for doing this right here. You know where I've learned that they've learned to do that from? Old grouchy adults. Put away your devices for a second. Bury them. Bury them. If you can't, if you can't resist the urge to touch them, take them to the sound booth and leave them on the counter. Because here's why. It's not because I'm so compelling of a preacher or anything. I'm not. I, I know my strengths. I know my limitations. But we're talking about the very word of God this morning. Every morning we come here, Facebook is not more important. Whatever game you're playing on your phone is not more important than God's word. Amen. And, and I just feel like I got to say that every now and then to us because we develop some bad habits. We develop some bad habits. And it's not just the kids. It's the parents of the kids and even the grandparents of the kids. So I want to begin with a couple of illustrations. This first one will probably ring true with some of you. If you as a kid grew up and your church was a part of, of, of a church that did evangelistic events for kids and stuff, maybe you took them to camp or you went to, um, our, our church used to be a part and do the Word of Life rallies. Um, how many in, the, in this church remember going to Super Bowls and things like that? Yeah. And, and, and so, when you're involved in, in those kinds of things, you get a speaker in there, and there's this temptation for the speaker because he's supposed to give this evangelistic message, and he has this temptation in the back of his mind. You could almost see him just being pulled by it. I got to get people to come forward. You ever been a part of that before? I got to get people to come forward. And I remember very vividly sitting over in Dayton, Ohio. At, at the little arena over there uh, on Wright State's campus um, where the, the Dayton Bombers played, um, I don't think it was double-A hockey, and we had this large event, all these churches in there with their kids, okay? And, and this guy gets up, and he is preaching, and he is preaching hellfire and brimstone to kids. He is trying to scare kids forward. And I remember, if you brought kids, you were supposed to go and be ready to counsel with kids. They didn't want you counseling your own kids, which really set me off. I really wanted to counsel my own kids when they came out. But, but so I remember getting this little girl, as she comes out, and she is just weeping. It is, and I don't mean to be stereotypical, it is the typical after-campfire service kind of weeping that a little girl would do. You know what I'm talking about? She's all emotional, and, and, and she's ready to go. And she comes out, and I'm, and I'm ready. I'm like, I'm primed. I got the Romans road. I got it all. Man, I am going <laughs> to let her have it, right? And I ask her this question. After I get her name, I said, why would you come forward? And here's her response. I just don't know. I'm so sad, and my dog died. 
and my dog died. And that's a sad thing. She's probably 13 years old. That's a sad thing when your dog dies. Don't get me wrong. She had no idea why she came forward. And there's a, there's a danger in that moment that I could, I could have led her to pray a prayer and she could have walked out of there thinking that she was good with God. She had no conviction in her heart about the gospel at all. She was just sad about her dog dying. And I contrast this, and I mentioned a name here this morning, and I don't want you to believe that it's a total endorsement, but there are guys that I like to listen to. They may not always agree with, with, with you know, we may not always line up theologically, but one of the guys I like to listen to is Alistair Begg. Many of you know who that guy is, right? I like to listen to him because he has the cool accent, and I don't. I like to listen to him because he's got a great sense of humor, but I like to listen to him because when he opens up a passage of scripture, I feel like I'm just diving deep with him in that passage. And he tells this story of an encounter when he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He had been asked to preach at a conference there. Cambridge, Massachusetts, this very liberal town, and he's sitting in a, in a, in a Starbucks, I believe, as he tells the story, and he's putting the final touches on a message that he's going to give later that day. And he sees this young Korean girl sitting at a table, and, and as he's watching her, he's watching the rest of the room, and the rest of the room is just going about life, you know, and there, there's all different kinds of people. I wouldn't know. I never go into a Starbucks because, I, you know, that's just not my thing, right? But he's saying there's all these different people in there and all these different just nationalities and, and people in there for a variety of reasons, people yelling at their barista because they got the order wrong and all this, and he sees this young Korean girl sitting there with an open Bible, and he approaches her and he asks her, are you a Christian? And her response was remarkable to him. And it is a remarkable response. Her response was this, yes, I've found the narrow way. Yes, I've found the narrow way. I've been a believer now for close to 40 plus years. Actually more, it is 40 plus and I have never had in my life anyone described their coming to Christ or their professing faith in Christ's experience as finding the narrow way. I've never heard that before. I've never heard anybody say, I've entered at the narrow door. And this morning in our text, in Luke chapter 13, we have Jesus describing salvation in his own words. Who better to describe salvation than Jesus, right? Who better? Would you agree with me? Since it's his salvation, who better than describe it? And he puts it in words that, that are different than the words that we use. And we talk about this sometimes. You'll hear me talk about this from the pulpit, how we, we use this Christianese speech. And I wonder sometimes that people who are visiting, people who, don't, who have never been in a church before, people who have never been around Christians before, they look at us and they're like, what is wrong with you people? Because we use language that, that really just doesn't really describe what we're trying to talk about. And in our, in our text this morning, in Luke 13, Jesus is asked a question. And, and he's going to respond to this question, and, and his answer includes the kingdom of God, which we talked about last week. And, and, and so I want us to pay attention to the words of Jesus this morning, and we're going to unpack them in the moments that we have. Luke chapter 13, verse 22 this morning. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. 
For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you, are, where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And, be, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Father, these are really important words. These are your words that you have recorded for us. These are the words of our Savior as he, as he walked on this earth. And as we prayed earlier, your, your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Uh, and I pray that, that this morning that, that the light of your word would take us right to the threshold of the narrow door this morning. May we have ears to hear your truth this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we launch into this text, notice in verse 22, where's Jesus headed? He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. That's, that's indicative of, of where we are in terms of his ministry. This journey in Luke's mind has began, began all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 51, where he says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so, so Jesus is still on his way, and, and don't think of it as a, as a you've, you've put in your GPS, get me to this place in the shortest distance. This is more of not getting from A to B. Yes, he's leaving A in Galilee, and he's eventually going to end up in B, but this is not a direct route. Jesus is hitting every village and town as he's going through. He's crisscrossing all through Judea, and as he is going to make his way to Jerusalem. His death is months away, and as we've pointed out numerous times in Luke, the closer he gets to his death, the more the opposition is increasing, but also the more that he's going to be direct with his message. Now, Jesus always has been direct with his message, but, but he is going to be, if we can put it this way, he's going to be uber direct now in these last days. He, he's not going to hold back on, on what he has to say here. The message is clear, and he's using these last months to proclaim the message of the kingdom, which is the message of the gospel, and to call sinners to repentance. And, and, and when we think about his kingdom, just to remind ourselves of this, it's the sphere of salvation where God rules and reigns over those who love and serve and worship him, but it's also ultimately going to literally end with him physically ruling and reigning here on this earth. And so this is the message that Jesus is giving. It's a message of, of hope, but it's also a message of condemnation for those who are not a part of the kingdom. And so we have to understand that. And, and so someone lobs him this question in verse 23. And, and, and we have to understand the kind of thinking that's going on here. Someone says to him, verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? This is most likely a Jewish person asking a question from the crowd and saying to him, Lord, I know because I'm a Jew, I'm going to get in, but how many others are going to get in with me? You see, there was this common belief in this time, and it was taught by the rabbis that all Israelites will have a share in the life to come. 
Because after all, all Israelites are the product of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And, and because, because we all come from Abraham, we are all going to make it into the kingdom. Except for those who don't believe in the resurrection, Sadducees, or sorry, you're out. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you won't be able to be a part of the kingdom. And, and those who have greatly blasphemed the law. Which, when you think about it, isn't really much different than the contemporary world that we live in today. You talk to the average person, and the average person will tell you, I'm doing good enough to get into heaven. I'm doing better than most people around me. You ever had that conversation with somebody? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing more than other people. Um, after all, I go to church on Sunday. After all, not only did I go to church on one week, I came back a second week and went to church. And there is this idea in the world that we live in, much like Israel in Jesus' day, that, that because I came from a good family and my parents went to church, I was raised in church, now that I have my own family, it's, you know, I got other things going on, I can't do all that right now, but, but I'll get back to church, or, or that kind of thinking, that, that most of us live in a world where people around them think they're okay. Or you've had this conversation maybe with somebody. Well, well, God and I have an understanding. You ever had that conversation with somebody? God and I have had, we, we, we have an understanding here. We know what's going on here. I'm good with God. That is a very, very scary thing to say. I'm good with God. This guy is expecting Jesus to give him an answer like, you, yeah, you're right. Only the Israelites are going to get in, and, and, and only the, the good, there's going to be some that aren't. But Jesus is, he's waiting for Jesus just to be like the rest of the rabbis and say, yeah. And really what he wants him to say is, yeah, somebody like you who's willing to ask that question and smart enough to ask that question to me, you're definitely going to make it in. But that's not the answer he gives. Look at the answer that he gives in verse 24. This answer is stunning, but it is as timely today as it was then. The answer is this, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The answer is work to get in. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're in Christ, you're like, wait a minute, PD, you're about to go down a road you shouldn't go down. That sounds like works-based salvation, doesn't it? Strive to enter in. What Jesus is saying here, and that word strive is a really interesting word. How many of you ever had like crippling back pain before that put you in agony? Anybody in this room been in agony? That's what this word is in the Greek. It's literally where we get our word agony. It's agonizo. Literally agonize to get through the, the narrow door. And I have to ask myself, what, what does it mean to agonize to get through the narrow door, struggle to get through it? And, and, the, and the fact is, it is a struggle to come to faith in Christ. You want to know why it's a struggle to come to faith in Christ? Because of what we see back in chapter 9 and verse 23 and 24. Take your, take your Bible back to chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. You know what was missing at the youth rally I described to you at the beginning? Was, was a presentation of Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. There was this invitation to come to Jesus and Jesus will solve all your problems. Now is it true, those of you who are in Christ, that, that there, is, is the statement true, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear? Is that a true statement? 
But coming to Jesus, did that solve all of your problems? Are all of you in this room who are in Christ, are you problem-free this morning? None of you? Good. I haven't missed the boat then. But look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Ouch. And take up his cross daily, an instrument of death daily, and follow me. For whoever would, lose, or would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. To be honest with you, that won't get kids down an aisle at a youth rally. It just won't. It won't get adults down an aisle if that's, what you're told, if that's what your goal is, to get people down an aisle. That kind of message doesn't get people down an aisle. And I got news for you. God isn't in the business of getting people down aisles. He's in the business of reclaiming souls that, and, and, and transforming lives. And that's different than getting somebody down an aisle or praying a prayer. And so the gospel is not a message of prosperity. It's not a message of self-fulfillment. It is a message of radical self-denial. Let me say that again. The gospel is a message of radical self-denial. And that is something that does not play well in large crowds. Where people want to come and feel good about themselves. Because here's the reality of the gospel. It doesn't leave you feeling good about yourself when it's properly applied. It leaves you feeling empty. It leaves you feeling very broken. It leaves you feeling helpless so that you can be rescued by Christ and his work. That's the truth of the gospel. And so the gospel is a grace gift, and we can't earn our salvation, but entering at the narrow gate is a struggle. It is a vicious fight with our pride. It's a fight with our sinful nature. It's a fight with the world and everything around us that's trying to entice us to not go through that door. How many of you remember when you got saved, that big struggle that was going on in your soul? You remember that? Remember what that was like? Probably the biggest struggle you had was with your own pride and really admitting that you needed help. You see, I love the way it's described as a narrow door. A narrow door, you ever squeeze through a narrow door? Like the, when you go down to the Hocking Hills, there's, at Old Man's Cave, there's that one passage where you like got to squeeze through. And every year that I go down there, and I don't go every year, and that's the problem, it's getting a little bit harder and harder for me to squeeze through. I think someone's narrowing the rock. I don't know. Narrow passages don't allow for anything to come through, do they? Just you. Just you. And too often when we talk about the gospel and we talk about salvation, we talk about just come as you are. Just come as you are. Bring everything to Jesus. Here's the thing. The problem with that approach is this. We never tell people what they really are. Come as you are, but we never really explain to you what you really are. You see, there are many. Look at, look at what Jesus says here back in chapter 13. He says in verse 24, and it's true, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and they won't be able. What keeps them from coming through? It's because they're not willing to let go of all that they're holding on to. 
See, there's many who want deliverance. There's many who want salvation. There's many who want eternal life. Who wouldn't want to sign up for eternal life? Yes, one day when I die, I can be with God forever, but I want to live my life this way on this earth, and I want that too. I want the best of both worlds. There's no such thing with the gospel, the best of both worlds. And he says they're going to seek, but they're not going to be able. And the truth is, this morning, and I love you enough to tell you the truth, okay? This is how you know when somebody loves you, if they love you enough to tell you the truth. The truth is, this morning, there are probably many people, even in this room, who are resting in something that's not the gospel for their salvation. You're resting in a profession of faith. You're resting in an emotional experience that you had. You're resting in the fact that you, that you keep coming to church and that you sing and that you give. And I want to tell you, you cannot trust a prayer or a baptism or a record of empty works. Faith in Christ is, is, is demonstrated by obedience. What you, can, what you can rest in is in the fact that you have put your faith and trust in Christ and that you're being obedient to him. You see, a profession of faith without, without fruit is worthless. You say, why, why are you so dogmatic about this, PD? Because here's the thing. According to verse 25, there's going to come a time when the door closes. Do you see it there? You see it there in verse 25? There is coming a time when the door slams shut. And my concern this morning, I'll just be transparent with you. My concern this morning is for the one or two or the ten people in this room that are saying, I'll wait just a little bit longer. I'll wait just a little bit longer. I'll wait just a little bit longer. I, I, I want, there's some things I want to do right now. Then I'll come to Christ. You know what's wrong with that look? You don't understand how hopeless your situation is. If you understood that you were on the sinking ship, would you wait just a while longer? Or would you get off when you had opportunity? The door's going to close. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying... I love this because one of the greatest misunderstandings of Scripture is the verse that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock in Revelation. And we picture poor Jesus as standing at the heart door just waiting. Let poor, weak, innocent Jesus into your heart. Who's doing the knocking? Who's doing the knocking here? It's the lost soul who realizes, Oh no, the door's shut. I can't get in. That's a terrible place to be. You don't want to be in that place. And I would say to you, if the Holy Spirit is talking to your heart today, there's still opportunity to get through the narrow door. But here's the thing. Notice what we're prone to do as human beings. Jesus is going to say, the master is going to say, they're going to say, Lord, open to us at verse 25. And he's going to answer, I, I don't know where you're from. And basically what he's saying there is, do I know you? Do I know you? One, one of my favorite holiday movies, I know this is sacrilege to talk about a Christmas movie in September. Some of you are probably already listening to Christmas music. I love you people. 
<laughs> One of my favorite movies is, though, It's a Wonderful Life, and at the end, he gets his wish. Remember? I mean, you've seen that part where George gets his wish? And he starts showing up at places in town and people that should know him. And, 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 and all of a sudden you get this one panic look in the camera like, no one knows me. Imagine talking to the Lord of the universe and he says, to you, do I know you? Do I know you? Where are you from? And look at how we want to justify ourselves to God in verse 26. There, there is always a desire in the heart of man to justify himself before God. Do you see it there in verse 26? <laughs> then you'll begin to say, we, we, we ate and drank with you. We, we spent time with you. We, we even were there when you taught in our streets. You see, there's this appeal of self-righteousness. There, there's, there's always these things that in our mind we think we can throw up to God that are going to be good enough, right? I did this, and, and, and I was there when you did that. I remember how you healed my sick relative. I prayed and you did it. Like somehow we were responsible for that. And we, we work hard to build this relationship. It's like the person that says, I'm good with God. God and I have an understanding. Well, here's the understanding that God has with the unbeliever. Apart from faith in Christ, you are destined for an eternity separated from him. That's the understanding that God has. Maybe some of you are saying... I prayed. I even got baptized. I serve at my church. I give money. I, maybe you're, you're a young kid at home. I'm obeying my parents. What more do you want from me, God? He wants you to humbly admit that you're a sinner. The hymn writer got it right when he said this, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Notice what the litmus test is. In verse 27, there's a two-part to this litmus test. He's going to repeat a statement that he made earlier, but he's going to add to it. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Relationship. If there's no relationship, a relationship that's based on repentance. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Repentance is what? It's a total change of thinking about something, isn't it? And if there's not a relationship based on repentance, and it's a change that only God himself can bring, there will be no entrance through the narrow door. But it's more than that. Notice what he says. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And, and here's the two part to this. A true relationship, a, a, a right relationship with the God of this universe always yields in a turning from sin. Now, I realize this morning that I'm talking to a room primarily full of people who are believers yet are still struggling with their sin. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? There's not one of us in this room who's perfect. I understand that. But it should be true of us as believers that there's a growing sensitivity towards sin in our lives and that the Holy Spirit is changing us and there are things that we are turning from and as our hearts get convicted, we leave that in the past. Is that not true? Understand when Jesus says there, in verse 27, depart from me, that is a final, that is a final <laughs> sentence. That's a final sentence. Depart from me to, to a place of judgment. 
Look at verse 28. In that place, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I was seven years old when I sat with, with Helen Tripp in my Sunday school room at Rochester Baptist Church in Rochester, Ohio, and, and I confessed my sins to, to Christ. But at 12 years old, we had a pastor in our church, still in that same church, who, who preached a series of messages for a month on, on Satan and on hell and, on the, and, and all this stuff. And I, and, I, and I literally say, not flippantly, he literally scared the hell out of me. He did. He did. So much so that I wanted to walk an aisle again because I, I wasn't sure. You see, hell is a terrible place, and we don't talk about it very much, do we? But, but here we have a text that presents for us just a little bit, a little tidbit about the evil and horror of hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an interesting thing that, that Luke uses weeping and gnashing of teeth, quoting Jesus. You'll find that term six times in the book of Matthew. And we don't have time to look at all six places. But, but three times in the book of Matthew, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth is associated with a place called outer darkness. Now, I know most of us are country folk. We like living out in the country. And one of the things we like about our country living is at night we can walk out and actually see stars, right? It's really cool. But even where we are in the country, we can see light, can't we? Can you imagine what it would be like into a place of total pitch black darkness? In Matthew chapter 13, verses 42 and 50, he talks about weeping and gnashing in teeth with, in association with a place that's a fiery furnace. There is a fire that burns so hot that it doesn't generate light. Not only is it a dark place, it's a place of pain. And Jesus in Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 24, verse 51, talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he says it's a place for hypocrites. I find that very interesting. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who says one thing and does another, right? Let's understand that, that the place that Jesus is talking about here in verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of pain, of conscious pain. It is also an emotional, and, and it is a terrible emotional pain. The guilt and remorse of not acting on something that you knew you should have acted on for eternity. Have you ever had remorse for something that you should have done? Imagine having that for all of eternity. I had opportunity. I had opportunity. I had opportunity. And let's understand, it is relentless and it is incurable. When you go to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, there is no escaping it. But there is escaping it today, my friend, in Christ. The only way to avoid it is to be safe in Christ and to enter through the narrow door. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. I am the door. But all of eternity isn't going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because Jesus goes on to describe here and he uses this kingdom of God language again. Notice what he says. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. So, so he's talking to this Jewish man who asked this question and, and he says, oh, 
for you, there's going to be this horrible pain because you're going to see all the people from your past, all the people that you've been taught about, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, they are all going to be there in the kingdom of God, and, and you're not going to be a part of that. And, and he's thinking in his mind, but wait a minute, I'm a child of Abraham, I should be here. No, just because you're in Abraham doesn't make you in Christ. And so a stunning rebuke for this Jewish man and all the other Jewish people who are there. Just because you're a Jew, you're not going to be there. Can I make this application? Just because you're from a Christian nation doesn't mean you're going to make it to eternity. Just because you vote conservative doesn't mean you're going to make it in eternity. Notice there's going to be people from four directions in verse 29. From the east and the west, the north and the south. This is good news. This is happy news for us. This is where we fit into this passage of scripture. These, these are people who are not Jews. The Bible calls them Gentiles, right? It's, it's, for, it's for everybody who's not a Jew. And, and, what, and, and what's happening here is, is Jesus is saying, there's going to be many of you, my fellow countrymen, my fellow, my fellow Hebrews, my fellow children of Abraham, who aren't going to be there, but there's going to be a bunch who come in from outside of Israel. I think of the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 3, in Christ there's no Jew or Greek. And, and, and notice what it's going to be. It's just a little phrase at the end of verse 29, but recline at table in the kingdom of God. Recline at table. That's not terms. When we have Thanksgiving dinner, we don't invite the, hey, you guys want to come over and recline at table? That's a quick way not to have anybody come, right? Maybe we should try that, right? <laughs> you want to come and recline at table? You, many of you know this illustration. The way they ate then was they ate laying down at a table, a low table. And it wasn't just the way that we eat meals, you know, like 15 minutes, get your Big Mac down and your fries and drink your, drink your Coke or whatever. No, it was a long time. It was, it was a social event to recline at table and eat. It was a personal thing. And here's the thing that, that Jesus is saying, there's coming a day when I'm going to bring you to my table. I'm going to bring you right to my table, and we're going to have a great banquet. I mean, you won't have to worry about which fork to use and which spoon to use and which, which cup to drink out of. We're just having a banquet, and I am going to spread it all out on there for you because we're going to do this together. And it pictures the beauty of fellowship with Christ. And man, we long for it, don't we? I hope you long for it. And until we get there, that, just a little sidelight, that's the beauty of the local church. It's supposed to fill that gap of that fellowship. Maybe we should be reclining at table more often here on earth. And then he goes on to say, and behold, some who are last, or some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. In other words, everyone's equal in the kingdom. One of my favorite little sayings, and it's a trite little saying, but I still love it, is, you know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, is it not? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
I know, as Americans, we think that as American believers who happen to have the right theology, we're going to get a little closer to the throne. I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you understand that the thief on the cross got as much grace as the 80-year-old Christian veteran who lived all his life serving faithfully? He got just as much grace. He got as, the thief on the cross got as much grace as the Apostle Paul. And as you and I have gotten. And I would say to you, if you've never entered in at the narrow door, that grace is available for you today. That grace is available for you today. It's an amazing thing. So let's think about some take home from this. Two things. Believers in this room, church, we live in a world that does not embrace the narrow door. The world is screaming that there are many ways, right? The world is screaming to us that there are many ways to get to God. And in fact, you don't even, the end game may not even be getting to God for some people in our world. And what happens is, when we live in a world where, that, where those voices are even getting louder and louder and louder, we tend to get a little timid with that, don't we? Because if you stand up and boldly proclaim that there's a narrow door to go through, people will look at you like you got a third eye, right? But here's the truth. Many churches and groups of Christians that were once solidly gospel-preaching churches have lost their way right here on this because they've forgotten that there is a narrow way. And anytime we try to widen that door, we're messing with the gospel, and God doesn't look, doesn't look favorably on that. Jesus, our example here, did not if you read just verses 22 through 30 of Luke 13, would you say Jesus is watering down the gospel there for his audience? <laughs> I got to make it good for my audience. No, he's telling them the unvarnished truth, is he not? And that's where we need to be. We don't need to be punks about it. We don't need to be rude about it. The gospel will punch hard enough on its own, but we need to give the true gospel. To give a false, weak gospel is literally, and I know this may be too soon, it is literally to inoculate people to the power of the gospel. Do you understand that? To give a weak, false gospel is to give people a little hope and an inoculation that might keep them well. And in the end, they're going to find out it did nothing. The narrow door is open, though. It hasn't slammed shut. And it's open in Christ. He is the way. And so this morning, if you're here, if you haven't by faith repented and turned from your sins and to forsake sin to follow Christ, I beg of you, today is the day. You don't know when the door is going to slam shut. You don't know. And so, Father, it's not walking an aisle. It's not praying a prayer. It's not coming to church. It's not trying to be good. Salvation is only found in Christ. And I praise you, Father, that, that you still are offering salvation today.
There's none of us in this room that deserve it. But I pray for those of us in this room who have received it. Forgive us for, for our weakness in proclaiming the gospel. Forgive us for, for, not, for not just presenting it for what it is. It is the truth. It is the only hope for this world. Forgive us for getting more passionate about politics and sports teams than we are about the fact that Christ has come and there is hope today. Holy Spirit, do your work in hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.